Raise the flag. Light the cauldron. We, we declare the, the game's, game's Odyssey, Odyssey open. Welcome to the game's Odyssey podcast, your home for stories of glory from Olympia to now. I'm Jonathan Jordan. And I'm Sarah Patton. We both love the Olympics and Paralympics, and we love history. And most of all, we love Olympic and Paralympic history, even when it's a bit of a mess. Or a lot of a mess, which is the case with today's episode, because we're going back to Paris the first time that they hosted the Olympic Games back in 1900. Or it's what I like to call the what Olympics? Because they were so confusing, bizarre, and it seems like very few people even knew that they were happening at all. Uh, in other words, this is going to be fun for all the wrong reasons, and I'm both excited and dreading talking about these games. Uh, but Sarah, you've, you've been to Paris, the City of Light, right? I have been to Paris. I've been there a couple of times. It's a pretty fun place. It is on my list. I have not officially been there. I have been to Charles de Gaulle Airport, which is not nearly as enchanting as I'm sure the city itself is. It's it's cool to think about the Olympics are coming back to Paris, but I think yeah. uh, 1924 will, or sorry, I think that 2024 <laughs> will certainly be a lot smoother and a lot shorter than the 1900 Paris games. <laughs> yeah, it, it does get a little confusing because we had the 1924 <laughs> Paris games and now we're going to have the 2024 Paris games. But we're talking about the 1900 Paris games, uh, of course, the second Olympiad for the modern Olympic movement. And, you know, too often sequels just aren't quite as good as the original. And that's definitely the case here with <laughs> the Paris 1900 Olympiad. Before we get started, I do need to give a shout out to another podcast called Stuff You Missed in History Class, uh, which has an episode dedicated to the 1900 games that I used for part of my research. In fact, they also did an episode on Coubertin. That was part of my research for that episode as well, for both the, the revival of the games and the 1896 episodes that we did. But I, I totally failed to mention that when we recorded. I, I believe I did have it in the show notes, though, so I at least gave them credit there. Give us some highlights if we can call them that, of Paris 1900, before we dive into the utter confusion of those games. <laughs> yeah, so highlights. Here we go. Um, first of all, the games were held in Paris from May 14th through October 28th, 1900. Say that again. Yeah, you heard me. <laughs> May 14th to October 28th. That is over five months. And not to jump ahead, but shockingly, this would not even be the longest Olympic Games. So let's pretend for a second that the Olympic Games ran for five months today. Would Nick let you watch for the entire duration? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I, I think it would have to depend on 
you know, is this more of a, we're pacing ourselves for five months or are we going hard for five months? Because that's the thing when the Olympics and Paralympics are on, just, we don't get much sleep. We accept that we are watching (laughs) things all the time. I mean, and it's amazing how I can think, oh my gosh, I wasn't planning for this. I've got, you know, I'm a little behind in my planning for a watch party or whatever. And then as soon as it's on my TV, I just go into this mode where I am hooked and nothing's getting in the way. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's hard to think what that might look like for five months. Um, So hopefully it would be very uh, slow and steady, maybe one event at a time, (laughs) but um, no, I I think we would have some problems if it was full throttle for five months. What what about you and your family? (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's here's the deal. Krista likes the Olympics and Paralympics. She doesn't love them. Okay, so she she tolerates it because I don't really follow a whole lot of other sports. Like I'm not the guy sitting on a couch every Saturday in the fall to watch college football and things like that. Honestly, I don't think she and I would be married if I was that type of person. So she's willing Mm -hmm. to tolerate me being obsessed with something for, you know, basically three to four weeks every two years. <laughs> but even then it has its yeah. limits. Even this year, she was like, can we please watch something else for a little bit longer? Can you catch the replay <laughs> on this later on now that that's actually an option? I'm like, okay, that's fine. Yes. And then sometimes she just disappears into a different room with her laptop to watch whatever she wants to. (laughs) So yeah, I think we would have problems if it was five months long. But to your point, I I don't think it was like they were doing events every single day of that five months. It just took five months for them to get through everything. So next highlight, there were 1,226 athletes that participated, representing a total of 26 national teams. Third, there were 20 sports contested with a total of 96 medal events. Next up, these were the first games that women could compete in. So sorry, Pierre, or not sorry. I'm happy that the ladies <laughs> finally get a chance to, to go for it. Um, and then yeah. lastly, these games are best remembered for featuring a series of events that we would now consider pretty bizarre, including hot air ballooning, tug of war, firefighting, and life-saving we got questions yeah, and to gonna, talk about here. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to dive into <laughs> some more. Because, I mean, that's just the beginning of the list of the bizarre events. That's not even the whole thing. Considering the fact that they had more athletes and more events than in 1896. Like, on paper, that sounds like we're headed the right direction. So, the first big question is, what went wrong with these Olympic Games. And, you know, it might be a little bit easier to talk about what went right, and we will get there. Uh, So first, I think we need to understand the context of what was happening with the planning of the Games, and then the confusion will become, well, okay, it's still confusing, but it'll be a little less so, and we'll understand the context. All right, so diving into the background... 
The 1900 Games were awarded to Paris during the first Olympic Congress held June 16th through 23rd, 1894, which had also confirmed Athens as the first host city. You might recall from our Coubertin episode that he originally wanted the first Olympiad held in Paris in 1900, thinking that by tying the Olympics to a massive event like the World's Fair, then it would get more attention and truly take off. Thankfully, Mm -hmm. he was overruled on this because this plan was going to backfire on him. By the way, fun fact, and you listeners may already know this, but June 23rd is also celebrated as Olympic Day around the world. Um, We didn't mention that previously, but yeah, sometimes during or on June 23rd, you might see stuff on social media. Sometimes, especially in an Olympic year, I've noticed that more cities are doing events like local governments might do a 5k or a festival. Um, it's a great way to celebrate sports and then also diversity and inclusion. So I think it's an easy win, but that's for a whole nother. Yeah. According to Kerberton's own writings, he said, At the time, nothing was more difficult than attracting large numbers of spectators to watch a sporting gathering. Interest levels remained weak. Only the velodromes attracted occasional crowds. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, and I think that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, we haven't talked about this on our regular episodes, but you know, Sarah, back when we did our practice episodes. And we talked about the history of sports. We talked about pedestrianism and how it was super duper popular during the 1800s. And it did gather crowds, but that was kind of the exception to the rule. Uh, Getting people together for other sports just was not a huge deal like we see it now. So I think Coubertin's quote here gives a little bit of context to why he thought it would be a good idea to to hold the Olympic Games at the same time as the World's Fair. Yeah, I, you know, I'm with you that it's it's a valid point to think that this would work. I mean, this is before, you know, to skip ahead a century. This is before the time mm-hmm. of the internet. This is before, you know, I think a big draw to people going to major events, not just the Olympics, is... They get to go, they get to say that they were there, they get to post about it, and then all their yeah. friends have fear of missing out. So this, you know, <laughs> it, especially bringing back the modern Olympics, he knew that there was going to have to be something to get people there. And, and what do you think about his comment about the velodromes being popular? I don't know. I don't know if I have strong thoughts on that. Um, but that, because well, the thing, well, the thing that's popping into my mind is that whenever I talk about being in Paris, the only thing mm-hmm. that I ever really saw that was related to the Olympics was a historical marker saying that this was the site of the velodrome. And so I'm trying to get that out of my head so that I can actually think about this quote. Yeah. Well, here's what it made me think of is that to this day we still see the velodrome cycling sports be a lot more popular among the european nations than what we see here in the americas um and so it it that stood out to me that wow okay even back then cycling was already really really popular and of course i mean france you think about the tour de france like Cycling mm-hmm. is just really popular in Europe. And so it would make sense that early on, there's this tradition being established of 
people will get together to watch guys riding around on bicycles. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, and this shows my ethnocentric mentality showing because I was thinking in my head without saying it, like, do they really though? Do the velodromes attract large <laughs> or occasional crowds? Um, because that's not really the case here in the United States. So yeah, it shows. Yeah. It shows my narrow, narrow, narrow mind, my very narrow-minded perspective of thinking. I mean, I would go, but it's not something that, in my experience, a ton of people are trying to see. So, yeah, good point. Right. So, yeah, on paper, it seemed like a great idea and logical to pair the two events up together and drum up some more international support and visibility for the fledgling Olympic Games. But... That's also assuming the organizers of the World's Fair were as excited about the Olympic Games as Coubertin was. Spoiler alert, they were not. In fact, <laughs> the organizers saw it as a secondary thing to the World's Fair, largely cutting Coubertin and other IOC members out of most discussions. Yeah, and I think secondary is generous. Uh, I don't even know that they saw it as secondary. So the the lead organizer for the World's Fair in Paris was a guy by the name of Alfred Picard. His opinion of the Olympic Games was that it was a really strange and frankly terrible idea to feature something that honored ancient history at an event that was devoted to celebrating the future. So... To play devil's advocate for a second, which is something that I love to do, I, I kind of see his point from his perspective. It would be kind of like Disney World putting a Hercules-themed ride inside of Tomorrowland. It just wouldn't make sense. And so that's how he saw it whenever Coubertin approached him about, hey, buddy, let's let's team up together. Let's have these two things join forces is the World's Fair was about celebrating progress and technology and the future. And all he thought of the Olympic Games was as something from ancient history that probably needed to stay in ancient history. Uh, so here's the deal. The organizers of the World's Fair, including Picard, they probably didn't want to completely offend Coubertin since he was a baron and all. So they agreed to draw up a provisional program of what events they would be open to including uh, and what aspects of the Olympic Games could be a part of the World's Fair. However, the trade-off for this was that the IOC would have to cede control of the Games to the World's Fair Organizing Committee. So, so yeah, there was this kind of catch-22 um, and the IOC at this point, they had kind of backed themselves into a corner. Uh, they couldn't move the games somewhere else. They had already decided on Paris. And, you know, they couldn't have the games without the World's Fair. So, of course, they agreed. And then once they had given up any kind of control, any kind of say in the organizing that's when Coubertin was largely cut out of the planning process, uh, which obviously was not something he was used to. Homeboy loved founding things and coming up with a plan. Like you, Sarah, he liked having a checklist <laughs> and <laughs> checking everything off on that list. So 
that had to be painful for him personally to give up control. Um, and then, you know, his worst fears were probably realized because in February 1899, Alfred Picard ended up appointing Daniel Marillon to be in charge of organizing the Olympic program. Now, Marillon was the head of the French Shooting Association, so he did have a connection to sport. And I think it's important to recognize like why he was being selected to take over the Olympic program. Uh, but once he was in charge of the Olympic program, he proceeded to publish an entirely different program of events from what the IOC had agreed to before they gave up the control, which kind of a lousy move, in, in my opinion. That is totally lousy. And also from the perspective of someone who used to be an events manager. It's yeah. also kind of, you're making more work for yourself here, buddy. <laughs> what yeah. are you thinking? <laughs> so I'm glad you brought that up because Sarah, you know, back in our opening ceremony episode, uh, you, you didn't mention to everybody that you used to work in parks and recreation. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Not, not go. the it's TV show. The real life. But yeah, event rest. planning. So, so yeah, I think you have a, a good perspective on this. I mean, talk about that a little bit more. Like, what, what is it like to have someone else change your plan for a big event? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, With, without naming names. <laughs> yeah, no. And the question I always get is, is Perks and Rec the job just like the show? And I will just say that those people that wrote for Parks and Rec, they did their research because there are so many similarities. <laughs> and I mean, to cap it all off, somehow we had a miniature horse that would always show up at our event. So <laughs> whether it's through a petting zoo or some kind of pet parade, I don't know. Somehow we always had a miniature horse from somebody. They were different horses. But anyway, um, great job. Loved it. But yeah, there, there were a lot of times, and not just things that I experienced, but you can see that sometimes um, people don't like to stay in their lanes, and it creates mm. a giant hot mess. And I don't know, I just, it's, it's interesting when it's great to collaborate for one endeavor and, you know, have different people from different departments come together. And I feel like this is a great example of what happens when you don't let people stick to what they know. And it, right. yeah, Pierre, he knew, he knew what the goals of the IOC were. Pierre knew what was wanting, what he was wanting to happen. He knows sports. He had been involved. The IOC members had been involved in the planning. And like I said, this guy just goes and creates more work from himself by trying to start over. Um, although, yeah. you know, Pierre, you might be an expert, but you still got women in 1900. So cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well well again i mean you, you have to think about this must have been a painful process for him as someone who liked to have a plan and liked to execute a plan and knew how to do that really well and for him to have to give it up and, and frankly to have to recognize that it was really his own fault because it was his idea to connect the olympic games to the world's fair so at the end of the day he kind of had to take ownership of that to some to some degree now mm -hmm. okay 
we'll get back on topic a little bit, but <laughs> one of the consequences of Mary Lohm, uh changing the plan was that there were actually athletes who had made plans to compete at the Olympics based on the original program that the IOC had set, right? Because as you mentioned, there was no internet, there was no way to update people about changes. So they had sent out that provisional program far and wide to say, hey, here are the events we're going to have. You need to start training. You need to get a plan together to get over to Paris, right? But then with the changes, you know, a lot of these athletes, when they found out about them, they decided to withdraw or they outright refused to deal with the new committee. So you might remember in the second part of our 1896 discussion, we talked about Launston Elliott, uh, the, the weightlifter, and how he attended the 1900 games, but he ended up competing in discus because weightlifting was removed from the program. So it just kind of seems like, you know, he decided to go anyway and was like, oh, well, I guess I'll just see how far I can throw this thing. I mean, I'm a strong dude, so how hard can it be, right? Uh, so, you know, props to him still deciding to compete. But, I mean, could you imagine finding out that your event wasn't going to be a part of the program anymore after doing the hard work to prepare? And I'd like to say that that doesn't happen anymore, but then you've got cases like winter Paralympic snowboarder Brenna Huckabee, who basically dealt with a similar situation for 2022 Beijing. But yeah, could could you imagine that happening nowadays, at least on this scale? On this scale, no. That would be so hard yeah. to wrap my mind around. Anyway, with the change in the program, obviously that led to some conflict between the IOC, Cooperton in particular, and the World's Fair planning team. But Again, they'd already given up control. There was no going back <laughs> at this point. Uh, part of the conflict was over how the games would be marketed, or I should say how they would totally not be marketed <laughs> at all. In fact, in the official report, the press reported the Olympic events as everything from the International Championships, International Games, Paris Championships, World Championships, the Grand Prix of the Paris Exposition, and Sarah, my personal favorite, International Contest of Physical Exercise and Sport. I mean, that just rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I would love to see that on a t-shirt or something. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to have two t-shirts. So tell us. Who actually officially attended the Olympic Games? Yeah. Now, as we get further into Games history, we're not going to list every Olympic committee represented, and we'll probably just focus on new ones when they join. But here's the official list for 1900. So buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> Arge Argentina had one athlete. Australia with two athletes. Austria with 13 athletes. Belgium with 78 athletes, Bohemia with seven athletes. They were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Cuba with mm -hmm. one athlete, Denmark with 13 athletes, Germany with 76 athletes, Great Britain with 102 athletes, Greece with three athletes, which was quite the drop-off from 1896. 
Yeah, um, yeah, it's a little disappointing that uh, <laughs> that they didn't send more people, but yeah, I mean, they showed up to some degree. Um, <laughs> Haiti had two athletes, so good job, Haiti. Hungary with twenty athletes, India with one athlete, Iran with one athlete, Italy had twenty four, Mexico with four, Netherlands had twenty nine athletes, Norway had seven, Peru had one athlete. Romania with one. The Russian Empire had four athletes. Spain had eight. Sweden had 10. Switzerland had 18 athletes. The United States had a good showing with 75. And then here's here's where it gets really interesting. Post France had 720 of the 997 athletes following Greece's lead, and then some from the 1896 games. Unsurprisingly, this meant that they would go on to win the most golds and total medals, which, like you said, this also accounts for why they had so many sweeps. Just like with it, with Athens, 1896, there is some discrepancy on the numbers. Some sources say there were 997 athletes from 24 national delegations, but the official Olympics website says 1,226 from 26 delegations at the top of the page. But then lower down on the page, it reads 997 athletes from 24 <laughs> delegations. So it seems like the IOC is just as confused as everyone else. <laughs> at least we're not alone. So if you go look this up on your own later, that's why you'll see different numbers. <laughs> we're all in this together my friends there were also some athletes who attended on their own and competed with other country delegations since their nation did not officially send them this included two athletes from canada one from luxembourg one from Colombia, one from new zealand some people also like to include brazil because one athlete for France was the son of a Brazilian diplomat. And there were also athletes from Algeria who sent four gymnasts to compete on the French team. Athletes from Ireland who competed as part of Great Britain. A Polish fencer who represented Russia. A Croatian fencer representing Austria. And a couple of Slovakian athletes who were included as part of Hungary. You know, it kind of makes sense why there is some confusion on which countries were actually there and how many people were actually there because you did have some of these countries kind of intermingling with each other because it, we don't know the full story of that. Maybe it was because they weren't sending an official delegation. If someone wanted to tag along with someone else's team, they, they could do that technically, and it wasn't a huge deal. Ever since 1900, the IOC has struggled to recognize which events were official and which ones were not. In fact, it was only in July of 2021 that the IOC decided on the 95 official events because it's just always been that confusing. Uh, as we already alluded to, uh, weightlifting had been dropped for these games. So was wrestling, even though both of those events had been really popular at the 1896 Athens Games. Uh, but obviously the planning committee for the World's Fair didn't care about that. Um, now, there were 13 new sports added, so I guess that's a win. 
And then 14 venues throughout Paris were used for the events, but none of them had been built specifically for the Olympics, like what we saw happen in Athens or like what we see happen uh, today. We're going to go rapid fire here and talk about some of the events because, I mean, this is why we're here, is the insanity that was the events. So here are the new official events that were added. Uh, rowing, football, aka soccer, as we call it here in the U.S. Uh, equestrian events made their debut. Archery showed up for the first time. Sailing, which was supposed to be a part of 1896, as we talked about in that episode, uh, but it finally got to show up here in Paris. Water polo, and then a couple other events debuted that would be featured, and then they would be absent for a long time before being brought back, including golf and rugby. These games are also notable because they featured some new sports that would never show up in the Olympics again, at least at this point that we're recording, they haven't showed up again, including polo, cricket, croquet, which only featured French players at these games, uh, jus de pomme, uh, which is an indoor version of tennis, sometimes called real tennis for some reason, uh, basketball pelota, which is kind of like racquetball. I'm oversimplifying a bit. So for all you Pelota fans out there, don't yell at me. And then there were also some events that were not officially recognized by the OC, but they were thrown in as part of the World's Fair. So that include angling, aka fishing, uh, bole leones, uh, which is a bocha type game, petanque, which I've actually played before. And it's pretty fun, but it's a very, very French game. It's not terribly popular outside of France. It's a fun kind of backyard game. Not necessarily something I think that should be in the Olympics. So back to some other really weird events that were a part of it. Uh, kite flying, cannon shooting. I, I'm not even going to ask how they judged the winner for that. Um, <laughs> pigeon racing, hurling, not curling, Hurling, uh, that's a native Gaelic game originating in Ireland. And then some other bizarre events that featured in the Paris games were automobile and motorcycle racing, which that one feels like the least bizarre to me because auto racing has a ton of fans worldwide. Formula One, of course, is very, very popular in, in Europe and here in the U.S., honestly. Uh, so that one's the least bizarre, but we think it's strange today as part of the Olympics. Uh, hot air ballooning, where the pilots were judged on distance traveled, how much time they spent in the air, and the ability to land on specific targets. So, yeah, there's a lot we could probably say about that. <laughs> but um, I don't know. It's also one of these things where, I mean, how many hot air balloon pilots do you know? <laughs> It, it's a very specific thing that not many people have access to, I don't think. It is. Yeah. I always see a couple floating around in my area. There's a couple of hot air balloon enthusiasts up here. My son always loves seeing them. But again, not necessarily something I would call a sport. But uh, I'm not trying to be controversial for all you hot air balloon enthusiasts out there. But anyway, another bizarre sport is underwater swimming. Uh, the results of this event were a bit controversial because the bronze winner 
uh, Peter Leikeberg of Denmark was clearly the best based on the people who attended and watched the event uh, because he swam the greatest distance in the event, but he swam in circles and the officials measured in a straight line. So France ended up taking first and second in that event. Um, speaking of strange swimming events, there was also a 200 meter swimming obstacle race. And we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, live pigeon shooting. Yeah. So this was the only time that live <laughs> animals were used in a shooting event. And Lyon de London of Belgium ended up winning, bagging 21 of 300 pigeons that were killed. Um, that could be very problematic today. PETA would be all over that. Ab absolutely. They would not be having any of it. So Yeah, not um, to mention, that's not exactly something you want to sit and watch with your family because your small children <laughs> might be traumatized <laughs> watching these birds fly from the sky. And Sarah, as you mentioned earlier, a couple other bizarre events were life-saving and firefighting, which, you know... No one likes to come last in any event, but I can imagine you definitely don't want to be in last place for the life-saving event. Nope. <laughs> Sarah, if you had to pick one of these events to bring back, which one would it be? Oh, goodness. That's hard. Um, I mean, I'm inclined to say life-saving or firefighting because those seem very practical. Hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. What about you? So for me, out of all of these, if I could bring an event back, it would be the 200 meter swimming obstacle race. <laughs> I love a good obstacle course, you know, but this actually sounds like it requires a lot of skill and athleticism to me. And it even kind of makes me think a little bit of a swimming version of steeplechase, which is still in the Olympics to this day yeah. as an athletic event. So, uh, well, and so I, I think do love steeplechase. Yeah, so I feel like this is the swimming equivalent of it. And I think of this list, it makes the most sense to bring back. But of course, there's no one doing this event <laughs> in the yeah. world that I know of. Yeah, but, no, from, uh, a, from an athletic standpoint, I think that, yes, any kind of, either of the swimming ones, I think make the most sense. Absolutely. Yeah, they're all bizarre. But they are. All right. Well, <laughs> let's uh, let, let's take another quick little break and then we'll come back and we're going to talk about the medals that the what Olympians received. Many of the winners didn't actually receive medals, which, you know, we know that medals historically are very different than what we're used to now. But instead of medals, mm -hmm. Most received trophies or silver cups, which I'm sure helped contribute to the confusion of what was an actual <laughs> Olympic event. And Australian Frederick Lane, who won two swimming events, received a 50-pound bronze statue <laughs> of a horse for some reason. That's right. A swimmer <laughs> got a 50-pound bronze statue <laughs> of a horse. I'm not even kidding. I forgot about this fact, even though I did the research and wrote this. I totally <laughs> forgot about this moment until you started reading it. 
it so makes ridiculous. no sense. I like. I just wonder. <laughs> okay, because this is in Paris. Here's my conspiracy theory. Here, um, mm-hmm. they ran out of the silver cups and trophies, and so they just went into someone's house and was like, "Oh, this has probably been here a few hundred years. This is probably something that could go in the Louvre." But instead of the Louvre, we'll just give it to this guy who won two swimming events. No big deal. <laughs> like, I just... It's, it has no logic to it. And I, I love everything about it for some reason. But yeah. Oh my gosh. So yeah. I, I wonder where it is now. Like, it oh. has to be somewhere, right? Oh yeah. Like, I haven't gotten a chance to research it. But like, I'm going to find that horse. I It yeah, is going where... to be a horse. <laughs> that i find yeah okay if we if we have any australian listeners please track down frederick lane's family members and maybe i shouldn't tell you to track him down because that sounds creepy and you might get arrested but anyway um (laughs) please find out for us if the 50 pound bronze statue of a horse is still somewhere in australia we would love to to see what this thing looks like <laughs> indeed anyway oh l- let's, let's let's talk about the medals though <laughs> <laughs> now as far as the actual medals are concerned this was the only olympic games that featured rectangular medals so that's mm-hmm. pretty unique um and we'll make sure to share a picture of what those medals look like they were Gilt silver, meaning they had a bit of gold mixed in. Medals were awarded for first place in shooting, life-saving, automobile racing, and gymnastics. The second place silver medals were awarded in shooting, rowing, yachting, tennis, gymnastics, saber, fencing, equestrian events, and athletics. Third place bronze medals were given out in gymnastics, firefighting, and shooting. The International Olympic Committee has retroactively assigned gold, silver, and bronze medals to all competitors who earned first, second, and third place finishes in order to bring early Olympics records in line with the current practice, which we've talked about a little bit before. Um, That if you look look this up on Wikipedia, it'll have gold, silver, bronze winners, Um, not quite horse statue winners. Yeah, you're not going to see a little horse symbol next to Frederick Lane's <laughs> name in the official <laughs> records. Um, but yeah, I think, so one thing I want to note here that I I don't have in our notes is that the gilt silver is actually still a thing. Um, the gold medals that athletes receive now at the Olympics are not pure gold. They actually are uh, made of a gilt silver so it's mostly silver with i think it's six grams of gold mixed in so that they will have the golden color uh so yeah the medals are you know it's kind of funny to me because you see them biting their metal to test if it's really gold it's not a hundred percent (laughs) gold so uh so that's actually accidentally a tradition that has continued on today but i think it's interesting that Again, the medals weren't even consistent across the different events. Some events got these medals. Some events got these other ones. Again, it just total confusion across the board in terms of what's an Olympic event and what the winners actually receive. Uh, I call this section only in Paris. 
uh, we're going to talk about some things about these games that make it unique for better or worse, because, you know, we haven't talked enough about <laughs> those things so far. Uh, but for starters, Sarah, there were no opening or closing ceremonies and no medal ceremonies. Basically, just no ceremonies whatsoever. They were very anti-ceremony at this Olympic Games. I'm sure you have a rant prepared about that. <laughs> I mean, it's very disappointing. I yeah. love the ceremonies, as you know by now. Um, and the mm -hmm. medal ceremonies. Like, come on. At the same time, is like... Was this just like a subtle thing to try to tone down the celebration because they wanted to focus more on the World's Fair? Or did they just not think about yeah. it? It just wasn't important because it was five it, months long. <laughs> it was not important. As we already established, like, they they didn't really want to draw attention to the Olympic Games happening, which is why it didn't even show up in the marketing materials. <laughs> so they certainly weren't going to have any kind of fanfare attached to it or draw more attention to it than what they needed to. Um, now, that being said, it doesn't mean that the Games weren't completely without at least a little bit of fanfare. Uh, according to Olympics.org, uh, even though there was no official opening ceremony per se, there was a procession of gymnasts into the velodrome de Vincennes, uh, which took place during the National Festival of the Union of Gymnastics Societies of France on the 3rd of June, 1900. So... You know, that was kind of what you could consider the closest thing to an opening ceremony. But, um, you know, while Coubertin had been cut out of the planning, which is probably part of why the ceremonies didn't happen, it appears that he actually did preside over much of the athletic events. So I guess that was the bone that they threw to him was, hey, Pierre, you can be in charge of all the athletics. So... The 1900 games featured uh, another thing that we can point out that were unique to these games, and, and a good thing is that they were the first games to feature uh, a Black competitor, uh, who was Constantine Enriquez, who was on the French rugby team. So that's exciting, because so far this has been a all-white people event. Uh, so we're starting to see some representation from people of color. Now, Enriquez was actually born in Haiti, but he played for France, and then he actually took football back to Haiti with him. Uh, and yes, the French rugby team won gold, so that makes him the first person of color to be a gold medalist as well. So, you know, again, these games are kind of a mess, but uh, but there were a couple of notable good things that came out of it. So now, as we've already established, the scheduling events was poorly handled. And there were very few journalists or spectators there to, you know, actually document things. In fact, there was a croquet match where only one person attended. He was a British guy who traveled to France just to watch the croquet competition. And, well, I guess he had a good view, at least. Uh, by the way, there were only French competitors in the croquet tournament. So, again, that's why it's hard to qualify it as an official event and why the IOC doesn't recognize it as an official event anymore. Uh, the Paris games not only had the marketing issues, which were on purpose, but they also suffered from subpar venues. Uh, 
For example, the track and field events. This one really hurts my heart, Sarah, because I love track and field so much. But those events were held on really slippery, uneven ground of a horse track, not an actual running track. Which, by the way, the tracks back then were not anything to write home about, right? I mean, they were dirt tracks that were commonly used back then. Mm -hmm. So not, you know, not nearly as good as the ones that we see today. But now you're throwing a bunch of athletes onto slippery ground. And if nothing else, I just think of the injuries that that can lead to. Um, Oh, yeah. Now, atrocious. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Not ideal circumstances. Also, there was a straightaway section of the quote unquote track where the athletes had to go uphill and into the woods. So to me, that sounds a bit more like a cross country course than than an actual track and field track. Um, Oh, this is a fun fact. If you were a hurdler, you got to enjoy jumping over old utility poles that had been set up as the hurdles. And you know what? I'm sure that there had been very careful attention paid to make sure that those were all regulation height. Yeah. Um, Also, competitors in the jumping events, such as long jump, uh, they had to dig their own pits, which is the pits that they had to do that so yeah so not only are you running on joke. slippery ground it is a dad joke i'm a dad so yeah, you just have to pun. accept it it's a pun i'm here for it. it it is yeah so so imagine that like we think of the jumping pits you know that they have to go into to actually measure how far they've gone and that actually decides who the winner is and they just show up there and they're like grab a shovel boys we gotta dig the pit first before we can actually compete It's insanity. Um, It also sounds like there was not very clear delineation on competition areas and where spectators should, well, spectate. So there are reports that I found that spectators would actually stand up to see better and that that would actually interfere with the actual competitors. Uh, There's also stories of the discus and the hammer throwers hitting trees Uh, The Hungarian athlete Rudolf Bauer, who won the discus competition, uh, he had some of his throws enter the crowd, which, you know, we saw that happen with Robert Garrett at the 1896 games. Um, But on the bright side, uh, our buddy Rudolf, he did set a new Olympic record of 36.04 meters and three head injuries. Just kidding. (laughs) The head injuries is not an actual fact, but... uh, I can only imagine that, you know, everyone was at least having to duck when he (laughs) threw. Um, Another fun fact of Paris 1900 is the fact that pole vault was included as a gymnastics event because, well, it has the word vault in it. And the gymnastics competition also included things like having the athletes lift a 50 kilogram stone That's 110 pounds for us, by the way. So, again, they cut out weightlifting as an official event, but said, let's have the gymnasts do some weightlifting. That totally makes sense. Um, And then gymnastics also included rope climbing, just like it did in 1896. So, obviously, pole vault has stuck around. 
but as an athletics event where it belongs. And, you know, even though the French really seem to like the idea of it being a part of gymnastics, um, I don't know. I'd kind of love to see Simone Biles do pole vault. I think she'd actually probably be pretty good at it, honestly. (laughs) Totally see that happening. I mean, I think Simone Biles would be good at any sport she tries. (laughs) I mean, basketball might be a struggle, but... (laughs) I I, I don't know. I mean, look at Muggsy Bowles. He's not a tall guy and was one of the great basketball players of the 90s, so uh, wouldn't put it past her. Anyway, uh, the swimming events. This is another fun one. So we talked about with 1896, they had no aquatic center. They just dropped people into the Mediterranean Sea. And they didn't improve upon that much with Paris. Uh, The swimming events took place in the Seine River. And there were reports that the strong currents were actually causing the swimmers to have really fast times compared to the records (laughs) at that time. Uh, so on the plus side, it doesn't sound like anyone nearly drowned like in Athens, uh, but they, the river was just helping them along with the swimming. (laughs) Anyway, um, I, I'm worn out by all that. So I'm going to let you cover a few more (laughs) only in Paris items. (laughs) Oh, and we have some good ones. As I mentioned in the highlights, 22 women participated, even though the IOC did not officially recognize them at the time. Now they are officially recognized, probably out of guilt, but, you know, whatever. We'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sailor Helene de Portales, who was born as Helen Barbie in New York City, but was there as part of the Swiss mixed sailing team became the first female Olympic champion alongside her husband and nephew. Charlotte Cooper, a British tennis player, would become the first individual gold medalist uh, for the women. Now, we're going to cover both of these amazing, outstanding ladies in our next episode, so don't get angry at us for not talking more about them here, but we wanted to give them Mm -hmm. more time than what we could do in this episode because they deserve it. They both have really fascinating stories. And then here's a really wild story for you. So speaking of notable women at the 1900 games, one example of the terrible record keeping and bad communication is the case of Margaret Abbott. She was from Chicago, but came to Paris with her mother, Mary, to enjoy the art at the World's Fair. She and her mother both decided to enter the golf competition on a whim, you know, as people do enter Olympic competitions on a whim. On October 4th, Margaret shot a 47 on the nine-hole course to win the competition. So she actually became the first American woman to win an Olympic gold and remained the reigning women's golf Olympic champion for 116 years. But she didn't realize she was competing in the Olympics And it's very likely she maybe didn't even know during the course of her life. So yeah, yeah, that story. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's bonkers. You know, first off that, like you just said, you know, she enters on a whim, like, oh, I like golf. They're having a golf competition. Hey mom, let's go play, you know, and she wins, which I'm sure she enjoyed, but didn't even realize that again, over a hundred years later, 
she is remembered as the first American woman to win, you know, an Olympic gold medal. But of course, she didn't receive a gold medal at that time. She had no idea, which is both kind of sad, but also really fascinating. <laughs> You know, I did a little extra reading about her because I found her stories. I, I, I just, I couldn't believe you don't know that you are competing in the Olympics and then you don't know that you mm -hmm. win. So just reading about her that I think they eventually told her kids after she had passed away, like, Hey, by the way, your mom was an Olympic champion casual. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, yeah, I told my husband about this story too. Um, and yeah he couldn't believe it but yeah this is only in paris i guess even though most of paris is these games were just a hot mess they th there were some glimmers of good things that came out of it such as women being able to compete because mm -hmm. let's face it uh you know we we love what the guy did for the movement but pierre de coubertin was sexist and <laughs> had he had his way women would not have participated and that's why they weren't officially recognized at that time that was that was him you know wanting to keep women out so uh so you know it is good that in the long run this opened the door for women's athletics to be a part of the olympic games and something else uh that stands out about the paris games is they were the first games to feature true team events for the first time uh, this would include things like polo and sailing and tennis, as, we, as we've already alluded to. But sometimes the teams had mixed countries competing together because, again, the national delegations were not quite as important. So this is kind of a callback to Robert Garrett's story that we shared. Uh, we discussed how he had attended the 1900 Games and was on a team for the tug-of-war competition. But the team wasn't even completely made up of all Americans. You just kind of agreed with other people from other countries to be on a team together. So some of the teams would have two countries represented, maybe even three. And, you know, maybe they really should have rebranded the game for the Olympics and called it Tug of Peace. Uh, but I guess that doesn't have the same ring to it. And... Speaking of team events, another interesting story is about the Dutch two-man rowing team. So, they they ended up winning gold, but their their coxswain had to be replaced at the last minute by a young French boy who apparently they just dragged off the street. <laughs> like, hey, do you want to yell through this megaphone so we can keep pace? You know, what kid doesn't want to do that, right? Um, so <laughs> this, this French boy was aged somewhere between seven to 13 years old. And that confusion is because no one knows who he was. He disappeared after the event was over, but he was in the pictures for the victory celebration. And we'll, we'll make sure that we get this picture up on Instagram when, <laughs> for the episode and it'll make sense why we can't narrow down the age because the picture quality is not great. And when I saw it for the first time, I said to myself, yeah, that kid could be seven years old or he could be 13. It's really hard to tell. Uh, apparently some people have tried to track down who this child was, but 
this mystery boy is sometimes referred to as the lost Olympian because as the coxswain, he is considered part of the team and considered a gold medalist. We just don't know his name. Anyway, it really crazy, interesting story. And if his age was closer to seven, then that would make him the youngest medalist ever, whoever he was. It's just crazy that he stumbled into being in the Olympics um, and probably had no idea. And I wonder, I know that we still refer to him as the lost Olympian, but I mean, do you think he ever told anyone like, Hey, this one time I got to be on this boat and it was kind of a big deal or cause they didn't, they didn't yeah, really go. It yeah. Cause it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a big deal. And there was no advertising that it was the Olympics. And you right. know, like, I don't think it would have ever clicked for him later on with him being so young. He probably, there's a good chance he was probably still alive when the 1924 games came back when the Olympics were finally a big deal. But I just don't think he would have ever connected like, Oh, that's what I did. He probably just thought, Hey, it was really fun. I got to ride in a boat with these two guys for a little bit and yell at them through a megaphone. That was awesome. Good memory. Now I'm going to go have a croissant, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I anyway, just, yeah. I, I, I want to believe that at some point in his life, he realized what he did and that it was cool, even if he didn't have a medal to show for it, because it's just, I think it's such a sweet little story. But yeah, yeah. I know in reality... They didn't know the significance of it or anything like that. But right. hopefully at some point in his life, in his later years, he connected the dot, the dots. But yeah. I I mean, I, I would like to think <laughs> that, but it doesn't seem like it because no one's ever Stop been able to figure out who optimism. he was. I know. I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Or, you know, and, or. And it's too bad. It's too bad the picture quality isn't better. Because remember how we talked about how we've been able to use modern technology with some of these old photos from 1896 to prove that the Chilean athlete was there? Like, it's too mm -hmm. bad that we can't use that same technology with this picture to be able to say, oh, you know, here's what he looked like. And, he, you know, maybe there's yeah. some facial recognition where we could connect family members and things like that. But, Yeah it'll probably always be a bit of a mystery and I'm kind of okay yeah. with that. Well, I can dream. Yeah. Anyway, um, you know, we mentioned earlier that there was an obstacle swimming event, which I would gladly bring back as, as I said before. And I want to talk a little bit about what that event looked like. So it was a 200 meter course, and this was the only time the event has been in the Olympics, but um, in that 200 meters, there were three obstacles that the athletes had to deal with. The first two were a pole and a row of boats that the swimmers had to climb over. And then the third obstacle was a row of boats that they had to swim under. It was a freestyle swimming event, and um, it was made up of a, um, of a sem semifinal round and then a final round of 10 swimmers that were taken from the three semifinal rounds. Uh, so the final was held on August 12th, 1900, and it was won by Frederick Lane of Australia, uh, who we mentioned earlier, uh, which, again, I know it's shocking that an Australian would win a swimming event. That's just totally <laughs> unheard of. 
Um, and then uh, Otto Wale of Austria took second place, and Peter Kemp of Great Britain took third. Um, again, I think this event is really fascinating. I would not be against bringing it back. <laughs> anyway, let's take a quick little break, um, and then we're going to come back and talk about scandal at the Olympics. So, see you in a second. All right, let's talk about scandal, because, I mean, is it really an Olympic Games if we don't have at least one scandal floating around? Yeah, no, I think the scandal could almost be like the sixth ring. I know that the ring is there <laughs> to symbolize the continents. I get that. <laughs> but there's always got to be some drama and scandal going on here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, on that note, it did not take long for Scandal to make its Olympic debut. So it's fitting that the 1900 games, as much of a mess as they were, that Scandal would show up. So for starters, there were protests from some of the American athletes because there were events being held on Sunday. And some of them were opposed to competing on Sundays for religious reasons. Or, you know, maybe they were upset that they didn't have, they couldn't get Chick-fil-A that day. I don't know. Uh, but, but yeah, th that was a really important thing for a lot of people that they not compete on Sunday. And we're going to see that come up again in, with other athletes. So, uh, so there was that. Now, the biggest example of that tension happened when U.S. athlete Alvin Krenzlin won in the long jump. And Sarah, he won by just one centimeter when the final was held on a Sunday. His rival in that event, who was also from the U.S., Meyer Princeton, was very upset about this because he had actually been barred from competing in the final by his school, Syracuse University. So, so here's the deal. Princeton himself had no qualms or uh, religious reasons not competing on Sunday. Uh, he was actually Jewish. So competing on a Sunday, you know, wouldn't have phased him, didn't violate his personal religious beliefs at all. It was the university imposing their rules on him. So I think it's important we kind of understand why he might have been so upset. I, no one likes having their rights violated <laughs> or being told uh, hey, you have to follow the rules of, of this religious system, even though you don't belong to it. So the the story is that he was so upset that Krenzlin decided to compete anyway, and then won by one centimeter, that he allegedly walked over and punched him in the face. So, yeah, we had some some in-country drama happening there uh, at the Olympic Games. And, and, you know, the sad thing about that, too, is the U.S. athletes were some of the few groups there who actually realized that they were competing at the Olympic Games. And they should have understood that it was supposed to be about peace. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but, yeah, he was upset about it. So, uh, but while we're discussing Princeton, um We'll take a moment to talk about him. He he ended up being the most successful individual of the 1900 games. He won four golds for the long jump, the 60-meter race, 
the 110 meter hurdles and the 210 meter hurdles. Now, you might be wondering the 60 meter race, what in the world is that? Well, that event was only held twice here in Paris 1900 and then again in St. Louis in 1904. And then it was removed from the program because, well, it's only 60 meters. <laughs> so it just didn't quite, you know, one of these things is not like the other. They had to cut something. Um, now, as for Meyer Princeton, we're going to get back to him for a second. Uh, even though he was very upset about how the long jump competition finished, uh, he did get the chance to win his own gold in the regular triple jump. Uh, so he became the first Jewish American athlete to be crowned as an Olympic champion. I was just going to ask, did anybody punch him in the face after he won his gold medal in the triple jump? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. And, and you know what? Even the story of him punching Princeton is, you know, it, it's alleged. We don't know for sure that it happened. It, it possibly did. But remember people weren't recording a whole lot of things. So it's, it's hard to know what's fact and what's rumor, but I, I don't know. I think it probably happened. That's just my two cents. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, back to some scandal. Uh, now we once again have a case of possible cheating in the marathon, just like what we saw in 1896 when, you know, we had a Greek athlete hitching a ride <laughs> Now, unfortunately, I see a trend beginning here with the marathon that kind of breaks my heart because I love that event. Uh, but here's the thing about the marathon in Paris. So the course went through the middle of Paris, and it was supposed to follow along with the track of the old city wall, but it was poorly marked. And it sounds like it was also poorly supervised, as in not supervised pretty much at all. And apparently quite a few runners got lost, including multiple times. So it wasn't like they just got lost and, oh, now we're back on track. It happened multiple times that they lost their way and they would end up having to double back to figure out which way they were supposed to actually go. And who knows, maybe they were having to even ask for directions. We don't know. But it was apparently very confusing, which would still be on brand for the 1900 games. Um, but as a marathon runner, obviously it's not very ideal to have to backtrack and cover <laughs> more distance. It's also reported that some parts of the course, uh, runners had to actually deal with just some slight distractions like cars, bicycles, pedestrians, and animals. I'm assuming dogs were primarily the animals they had to deal with, but you know, based on the research, it just said animals. So, you know, maybe there were tigers or bears chasing them. I, I don't really know <laughs> what France was That's, like back then. Um, just unleash the lions on it, him and let him run away. Yeah. No matter what, it's not ideal having an animal chasing after you in a long distance race. So, no. Uh, American Arthur Newton finished fifth in the marathon, but here's where the controversy and the scandal really comes into play. He told the officials that he had not been passed by any other runner during the race. So he was confused when he crossed the finish line and found out that he was fifth. 
Uh, his teammate, Richard Grant, also claimed that he had been run down by a cyclist when he had started to gain ground on the leaders in the race. So, um, you know, we saw this happen kind of in 2016, remember, in the Rio Games, the marathon? Mm-hmm. Remember, we had a spectator jump out of the crowd and yeah. ambush a runner. So we had something similar happening in Paris where we had a cyclist going rogue and chasing after uh, Richard Grant. So rude. Uh, but when French athlete Michel Theato crossed the finish line first, you know, they were excited. A military band struck up the their national anthem, Le Marseillaise. So, so here you had the French very excited that they won the race. And then you had all these other runners pointing fingers and saying something about this isn't right. So three of the U S runners ended up lodging a complaint against the French who had won first and second. And they claimed that the French runners had to have taken some kind of shortcut. And their evidence was that they pointed out that they were the only two competitors in the entire field of finishers who were not splattered with mud, and that they didn't really look that tired. Now, the French officials, because <laughs> <laughs> remember, back then, if you were the host country, y- you were also in charge of all the officials. There, there were no officials mixed in from other countries. So the French officials did not accept the protest, and so the results stood. Um, Even putting that aside, it's debatable, in my opinion, about whether France can claim the victory, as uh, Michel Theato was actually born in Luxembourg and held citizenship there his entire life. So he was counted as part of France's team, but he was actually from Luxembourg. But the the mud thing I find really compelling here. It, yeah. Yeah, when everyone else is dirty and the winners are not, it makes you wonder. I have questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's definitely questionable for sure. So my goodness. Uh but anyway, um I think we got another uh kind of slight scandal to throw in the mix that you have. Yeah, another strange happening that I'm sure caused Kubertan no shortage of grief was that the organizers actually gave a cash prize of 3,000 francs to the Masters Epi winner, Albert Robert Ayat of France, obviously undermining the entire Olympic amateur code. Yes, fencing was the only Mm, sport that allowed professionals at the time, but they still were not supposed to get paid for it. Part of this was probably because of the popularity (laughs) of fencing in France and the fact that Epi had the biggest international field at the games bringing in 155 competitors so mm. it took only the second modern olympics for <laughs> little pierre's yeah. um amateur ambitions to tank i guess yeah yeah i mean that's that's a rough one of you know you partially bring back the Olympic Games to purify sport, to remove the the monetary incentives from it. And then they just create a monetary incentive, but they don't even do it fairly across all the fields. They just, you know, narrow down this one event that's very popular and, and give that guy 
you know, 3,000 francs. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. And I also recognize the proper way to say that is F.A. So while we're on the topic of fencing, it's worth noting that there was an event that actually pitted teachers against students, which I kind of, <laughs> I kind of love this. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and it's completely unfair. Yeah. Um, like I recognize power dynamic, totally unfair. Um, and also that the fencing competition occurred at the cutlery area of the World's Fair, which totally makes sense, right? Just an early <laughs> version of corporate sponsorship, I suppose. Makes total sense. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was kind of blown away when I found this out that, you know, the World's Fair already had a cutlery area of knives and things that they were purveying to people. And they were like, yeah, let's just put the guys with swords over there. It, it It's totally on theme. Um, and that's not going to teach anyone terrible things that they can just grab the knives off the shelf and start, you know, dueling with each other right there. Like there, there's no possible bad consequences here whatsoever. No. Well, and especially <laughs> but, what if, what if the teachers are showboating a little bit and then the students all band together and decide to really get crazy and show their teachers <laughs> what's up. I'm envisioning a riot of yeah. sorts here going on. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I have to wonder, like, like how how advanced were the students? Like, were, were these like the the top tier students who you know could hold their own against the teachers and maybe show them up, or were these like the beginner students <laughs> going up yeah. against the teachers? Well, that I that. have to know. So, and then you also anyway. have to you also have to wonder how old the teachers were because. Let's face it, there's a lot of Olympic coaches mm, that we see true. that could get totally demolished in Olympic competition now. Um, like, they're probably great for that's their true. age, but their 21-year-old athlete would completely destroy them in competition. So, I yeah. Yeah, that's I, fair. All right, so we're going to talk about a couple other notable athletes moving past Scandal. Uh, just a few people that you should know about who were at the Games and who made their mark on history there. Uh, so for the U.S., we've got Ray Yuri, who won all three standing jumping events. The standing high jump, the standing long jump, and the standing triple jump. Okay, so I'm going to pause here for a second because you might be a little bit confused. Like, what in the world are these standing <laughs> jumping events? Because we don't have them around anymore. Uh, but it was a thing back then that they had different versions of the jumping events. They had, you know, the running jumping events and then these standing ones. Anyway, um, all right, back to Ray. So his success in all three of these events earned him the nickname of Rubber Man which is not a nickname that I would want, but good for him. Um, also, we love Canada. I love Canada. And so we mentioned earlier that there were Canadians here at these games, even though it wasn't an official team. So George Orton became the first Canadian to medal. And again, this is eight years before Canada would officially send a team to the Olympic Games. So... He was sometimes accidentally counted as part of Team USA because he was attending the University of Pennsylvania at the time, and he joined up with the U.S. team when he heard what they were going to go do. Uh, he thought it sounded fun, 
he liked sports, so he tagged along, even though he wasn't technically a part of Team USA, and even though Canada didn't send him. Uh, but still, he, so this is kind of funny. He came in last in the 400-meter hurdles, but he still got bronze because there were only three competitors in the event. Those are then the kind of odds that on, I like. Yeah, like, sign, sign me up, please. Yeah, Absolutely. I could be an Olympic medalist <laughs> if there were only three competitors. It doesn't matter how If there's only three. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then uh, he did win gold in the 2,500 meter steeplechase. And just to prove that he actually did have athletic talent, that it wasn't just a fluke for him to get that bronze, uh, he broke the world record in steeplechase. Uh, so this was one of six uh, records that were broken at these games, and he won both of those medals in less than an hour. So yeah, two of those, both of those events were held within the same hour. He just had to go from one to the next. Hopefully, you know, I'm hoping that maybe the 400 meter hurdle came before the 2500 meter steeplechase. So it was like his, his warm up, right? That's what I'm thinking. Then we've got Stan Raleigh that I want to talk about. He was an Aussie track star. So, hey, Australia, welcome back. Uh, he won third in the 60-meter sprint that we mentioned earlier, the 100-meter, and the 200-meter races. So three bronze medals there. And the British actually got him to join their team for the 5,000-meter relay event since they were one man short now here's what's interesting because we don't really have this event around anymore uh he'd never run a distance race before so he didn't really have the stamina for it but again they were short a person they saw his success in the other races recruited him so all he needed to do was cross the finish line because this event wasn't really based so much on time. It was based on points. So the British team had enough points that as long as they had a fifth person on their team to cross the line, they were going to win no matter what. So... <laughs> he didn't really try that hard since he didn't have to. And the race officials got tired of waiting for him to finish. And so they just gave him last place automatically. And that gave the team enough points to be able to win. So um, I, I think you can see why we maybe don't have that event around anymore. But yeah, totally fair. There it is. So I, I just see him out there going for a leisurely stroll <laughs> just because... He knew they were going to win anyway at that point. It was just a matter of him, you know, walking the entire 5,000 meters if he wanted to. So, uh, again, I could story. be an Olympic champion if that was what I had to do. <laughs> could walk all day. Right. Sarah, take us, um, take us to the legacy. What is the legacy of these bizarre, confusing, Paris games. Yeah, the legacy. Um, so yeah, with the legacy and good things from Paris, there were several things that allowed the games to continue on. While mm -hmm. most of the events were sparsely attended, there were a few that actually drew quite a crowd, including the swimming events, 
gymnastics, and cycling. So those events are all still pretty popular mm-hmm. today. So it's no surprise that those drew people in. The one good thing about yeah. the IOC being cut out of the planning was the inclusion of women, even if equality in the full range of events would still take quite some time. Um, eventually, we'll get more sports that women participate in. Um, like thinking about the mm-hmm. marathon, for example, it'll be a very long time before women get to compete in the marathon. But at least right. at least we were represented there in some degree. The games yeah. mercifully closed October 28, 1900. <laughs> but of course, there was no closing ceremony to make that official. It just stopped. So any golfers that showed up to look at art and they no longer had a chance to just stumble into an Olympic golf competition. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so sorry for all the latecomers. Yeah. Um, the medal table is confusing for 1900. Cannot imagine why. And we found different numbers on different sources. So this is going to be interesting. 102 mm-hmm. to 111 medals were awarded to France. 27 to 31 of those were gold. So <laughs> at least we're at, okay. at least we have a range to work with here. U.S. won 19 or 20 gold medals for 48 total medals-ish, I guess. Um, 15 15 to 16 or possibly as many as 20 golds were awarded to Great Britain (laughs) with 32 to 38 total medals. Olympidia.com. Org has a pretty interesting breakdown and we'll have the link to that in the show notes, which on a side note, that website mm-hmm. is fantastic. I've been a big fan of that website for years, so highly recommend it. Yeah. France got 10 podium sweeps and Great Britain got two and the United States got six. So not a bad showing. Yeah, yeah. not a bad showing, just confusing, as you said. Um, so despite France's great success with the number of medals that they won, Coubertin was not so excited about those results, especially because of all of the confusion. Uh, after all, in his mind, this Olympiad was supposed to be taken more seriously than the Athens event, which he personally had seen the 1896 games as kind of like a test event. <laughs> uh, and really, in his mind, he thought the Paris Games would would make it explode and make it popular. So, so yeah, it was supposed to be the real deal, and I think it's safe to say that it just it didn't meet his expectations, and he just couldn't really celebrate the success of the French, even though he was French himself. As we discussed in our episode about Coubertin. He hoped that Paris would redeem themselves as a host city later on. He never beat around the bush, (laughs) old Pierre, and he wrote about the 1900 games. He said, it's a miracle the Olympic movement survived that celebration. So that gives you an idea of how disappointed uh, he was in how it played out. But um, even so... You know, that was his opinion. Uh, So even so, the games did still seem to have an impact on other people at the time. 
Uh, in fact, there was a popular French sports newspaper uh, called La Auto Velo, which wrote that since the time when every four years Olympic Games aroused in Greece and throughout the ancient world extreme emotion, never has sport been so honored than this year. Never has it gathered such a crowd. Sport has definitely become a new religion. And I found that quote from a book called The Games, A Global History of the Olympics, written by David Goldblatt. Uh, so there we go. We have, um, Sarah, yet another connection or uh, comparison of sports to religion <laughs> right there yeah. in that magazine. So, so yeah, so it didn't meet Coubertin's expectations, but there were a few people here and there who did notice and take an interest in what had happened, even if they didn't realize it was technically the Olympic Games. Uh, so yeah, so that was Paris 1900. And I'm not going to lie, even though I wasn't actually there, I'm kind of glad we're leaving it behind. I have a love-hate relationship with this topic. <laughs> so, um in fact, Sarah, there's, I've read this in several places, but there's some Olympic historians who don't even like counting Paris 1900 as an official Olympiad. Uh, obviously, that's not their decision. It's up to the IOC. Um, but in the case of the first three modern Olympiads, it really was a case of the good, Athens, the bad, Paris, and the ugly, St. Louis. Because, yeah. St. Louis 1904 was also a big, hot mess, but we'll get there. If you enjoyed this episode, and we really hope you did, then take 10 seconds or so to write us a short review. It helps the show out a lot. Also, you can join in on the conversation and get your games fixed by interacting with us on social media, Instagram at Games Odyssey Pod. Twitter at Games Odyssey Pod and on Facebook, The Games Odyssey. Also, I would encourage people to go watch our various playlists on YouTube. And if you find an Olympics or Paralympics related video that we should know about, hey, send it our way. We would love to see it and maybe add it to one of those playlists. Uh, but yeah, we haven't really talked about the YouTube channel a whole lot. And uh, I think pe people should go check it out because. There's some cool videos in there. Yeah. And join us next week for our discussion on Helene de Portales and Charlotte Cooper. But until then, Odyssey you later. The Games Odyssey podcast is a production of Wardrobe Media, LLC. This episode was written, hosted, produced, and edited by Jonathan Jordan and co-hosted by Sarah Patton. Show notes, including research sources and transcripts, can be found on our website, gamesodyssey.com. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Games Odyssey podcast is strictly for informational, commentary, and educational purposes. The Games Odyssey podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC and is not sponsored, endorsed, or officially affiliated with the USOPC or the International Olympic Committee or International Paralympic Committee. The content of Games Odyssey podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content feature in the Games Odyssey podcast is accurate.